On today's episode, we are talking about everything going on in the economy with investment returns, interest rates. So we start by talking about interest rates and what's happening with them and what do the experts predict is going to happen in the future. We delve into what's going on in America with their interest rates and economy and we talk in detail about why that might be relevant, especially if you own some investments. Then we start talking about why your investment returns might have been flat and we look at a few different scenarios that you can do about that and also why it's not exactly unexpected that can happen. Then we go into talking a bit about bonds and what's going on in the bond market. Again, if you have investments, that's really relevant to you there. And we talk about whether bonds are back. So if you're into investing, if you've got a mortgage or you've got some cash savings, or you're just generally interested in what's going in the economy in general, then this is the episode for you. Don't forget, if you like these episodes, hit the subscribe button on whatever player you're watching us on. And if you're watching on YouTube, drop your comments down below and we'll do our best to answer them for you. Thanks so much for watching or listening. Let's get into the episode. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Mike Harms from Medical and General Independent Financial Advisors and MortgagesForDoctors.com. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Pretty well, thanks, Tommy. How are you? Well, yeah. So last time I spoke, I had two fully normal hands. Now I've got one and a half hands, thanks to incredible work from the NHS, because I cut my left finger, index, middle and thumb off. But we were just discussing off camera and you saw the photos off camera. They're not going out on camera, but... They're not for public amazing. viewing. No, no, it's bad. But amazingly grateful for everything that's been done for me and things are going well. So let's just get straight into it because this is like your regular slot where we talk about what's going on in the market, answer like common questions that I'm sure you're getting, like, should I sell all my investments and pay off my mortgage or something? Because of... <laughs> So where are we going to start with what's going on in the investment market and the economy in general? Sure. So do you want me to share a presentation to bring that up? Yeah, let's do it. Got slides if you're on YouTube. Don't worry if you're not on YouTube. We'll do our best to explain what we're seeing. Okay, so just a little disclaimer here. This is not financial advice. Past performance is not reliable guide to future performance. So I think I really wanted to start by talking about what's gone on in 2023. It's been a bit of a funny year, really, because we've seen a continuation of interest rate rises, successive interest rate rises over this year. And that's set to continue. But there's been a bit of a softening on the thoughts around how much further interest rates are going to go. Certainly, the European Central Bank actually raised interest rates by 25 basis points. That's 0.25% in our money at September. And that's not what they were expecting in the markets. They thought that inflation is under control very much in the eurozone and also within the US. So it was quite interesting to hear and see that it increased. That uh, And also then trying to understand what it is that's driving those increases. Now, GDP, which is gross domestic product, this is about all the growth we have within the, the, the economy. So it's how much money we're effectively making as an economy have also downgraded significantly for 2024. And that is really putting even more pressure on economies as a whole. 
and it, it means that recessions are possibly more likely. But the one country that is bucking that trend is actually the US at the moment. And the US are really starting to see um, some reasonable data. They're starting to show that there is a, a growth gap between the Eurozone and the US. And that, that's really quite heartening in the sense that it's likely that the US interest rates are now sort of peaking out. Now, that might not seem really relevant to us here in the UK right now, because, well, why would we care about the US? Why would we care about the Eurozone? Ultimately, we care about those countries because they're the first ones that are probably going to come out of this current economic situation that they're in. And if we start to see growth in those countries, that, that effectively will start to translate into the UK in due course, although there are subtle differences as we go along. But if we're focusing on the UK, let's talk a bit about inflation. Inflation is this fictitious thing that, well, I say fictitious, not fictitious, but it's a measure of changing in the cost of goods and services year on year. And it's a rolling 12 month figure. Uh, and what this graph shows here, and this is all information that's freely available from the Office of National Statistics. But what it shows is the, the trajectory of the inflation growth for the last two years. And that's really when we started to see the rise in inflation. It started around September 2021. And then obviously we started to see rate rises at the beginning of last year. And what you can see is as time's gone on, the areas that have consumed the largest proportion of inflation has actually been um, housing and household services. That incorporates things like gas and oil and heating. So you can see in the middle, that sort of dark green bar, that's where the, the vast majority of inflation is coming at the moment. But what's been really intriguing over the last six months is that we've started to see that reduce. And you can clearly see this on the graph here. But what has been increasing and has actually maintained itself has been our sort of frivolity, you know, going out and spending money in restaurants and hotels, food and non-alcoholic beverages. So food has obviously maintained itself in terms of inflation. But the sticky bit, they're now talking about something called core inflation. And they're saying that that sticky bit is the restaurant and the hotels and recreation and culture. That doesn't seem to be reducing. So, Tommy, I'm not sure about you, but, you know, it still feels that there are a lot of people out and about spending money in the local area you're going down to the local high street are you finding restaurants are full up is the high street still busy what's your sort of experience at the moment yeah super interesting i went out in london at the weekend which makes me sound kind of cool i hardly ever go out in london but i someone i know is kind of cool and they had a 40th birthday in london so that's why i went there normally i just stay in my village not even joking but the place was absolutely packed it was about like £10 for anything. Like, you know, I was on the non-alcoholic drinks and I think they were about £8. So, and it's packed. So it didn't feel like somewhere that was in recession and it didn't feel like somewhere where people were having their income squeezed. So I guess maybe there are people that are out and about maybe don't have exposure to housing and household services, but then I guess they need to heat there wherever they're living and stuff. I don't know. It didn't feel, it feel pretty vibrant to me. Yeah. So I think this is where we've got this conflicting story of what's really gone on over the past 12 to 24 months. So this time last year, there was significant concern around what was called and coined the cost of living crisis. And that was mainly down to the cost of gas and oil prices going through the roof. And obviously, if you you remember, um, this was when Liz and Kwasi Kwarteng came in and they put the, the guaranteed price cap in 
for gas and oil. So that sort of gave, I guess it took the pressure off of people's finances through winter last year. Now, when we look at cost increases in other areas, that has been more than compensated for majoritively by the pay rises that the most of the population have seen over the last 12, 24 months. And so what's actually happened is interest rates have been going up, but they haven't been impacting people yet. And I'll come back to that in a minute. There was a cap on the energy costs this time last year. And that meant that actually the original concern around not having enough money throughout the winter majoritively declined and and pulled back. And it's really only been probably from this point forward when interest rates are starting to trickle through in mortgage rates for people. And obviously we've seen rent rises as well, that things are getting a little bit tighter. But there is still also this phenomenon that is out there, which is people are still wanting to spend money and live for the day off the back of being cooped up for a couple of years through COVID. And so we've got this very strange situation going on where on one hand there is a potential cost of living crisis, but there are also a big group of people that are still going out and spending money because they're feeling, well, who knows what tomorrow might bring. And economists are struggling to work out what is driving this underlying inflation. So so they're now talking about core inflation and then imported inflation. And, and what we found with the imported inflation was that was the gas and oil prices coming through. As you can see here, if you look at transport costs, which was the burgundy colour, that's actually reduced dramatically. So that was where the cost of petrol and uh, diesel went up significantly. But what you can see consistently are those bottom bars which are covering recreational culture, other goods and services, restaurants and hotels, and furniture and household goods still remain relatively static and in some cases expanding slightly. So why is this important? Why does this matter? Well, if the cost of things increase year on year at this rate, but your earnings don't keep up with that level, then effectively you can't afford the same standard of living. And Where we sit right now, inflation is continuing to be sticky. And actually, they think inflation is going to tick up a bit in the August stats and then continue to drop over the coming months. Now, the UK, they are anticipating may drop to around 5% by the end of this year, but not certain. So if we break down the UK inflation, what's really interesting is this just breaks down the housing component that we saw on that last graph and where the major costs were being incurred. And as you can see here, the the blue bars here, it shows that the electricity, gas and other fuels were were the main contributing factor to the inflation rate. And But what we can see is that the cost of housing is increasing, and that's predominantly down to the increasing interest rates on mortgages. So what's actually going to happen over the coming 12, 24 months? Well, I think everyone needs to appreciate that any interest rate changes the Bank of England make actually don't have an immediate impact on the economy. It can sometimes take 6, 12, 18 months before the impact of that rate rise is felt in the wider economy. Now, if we go back to sort of 2007, 8, when we had the last large crisis within the financial markets and recession, for argument's sake, a lot of the mortgage market and a lot of people that owned houses were on variable rate mortgages. And that might seem a bit alien to anyone who's currently in a fixed rate mortgage. But the reason behind that is that actually back in 2007-8, you used to have to pay more for a fixed rate than you did staying on a variable rate. And that's because we'd had fairly stable interest rates for a significant period of time by that point. Roll forward, 
where we've had significantly low interest rates for a very extended period of time, we found actually fixing in was a cheaper option than staying on a standard variable rate. So what that means is that when the Bank of England put rates up and then mortgage providers put their rates up, it actually takes a while to impact the economy because until people come off their fixed rate mortgages, the actual true cost of those rate rises doesn't really get felt. So what we've seen is a bit of a trickle approach, which might explain why some of this inflation is still a bit sticky and why we might see an accelerated reduction in that next year as more and more people remortgage. So interestingly, we're seeing around about four to six hundred pound increase on the average mortgage per month, just when people are coming up for remortgaging. Yeah, that's super interesting. Like why it's different this time, because the, basically what you're saying is because more people are on these fixed rate deals, that the effect is staggered. Like we're not feeling the full force of it. And if you have had to remortgage in the last six months, unfortunately, you definitely felt the full force of it. But there's a lot of people who are on three years out on their fix, like two years on their fix. I guess they're just kind of hoping that it comes back down. But that's super interesting why we haven't seen the full effects. And uh, yeah, those graphs are super interesting. I also like love the colours that you chose. Very kind of earthy, on-trend colours. So I like that. <laughs> it wasn't me. That was the Office of National Statistics. But I've just borrowed this data from them. Um, Cheers, ONS. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted so, to loop back, sorry, about yeah. the US as well. Like the reason why the US is that if you hold a globally diversified investment portfolio like myself, then approximately 64% of your investments are going to be in the US, which is why it is actually relevant to a lot of us. And I was just looking at the S&P 500 for the year. So 52-week low is 3,491. 52-week high is 4,607, and it's currently just below that. So the S&P is back, baby, and it's fueled by things like NVIDIA, who make chips, which is kind of cashing in on the whole AI buzz. So... AI is buzzy right now, but that's it, kind of it, why the US is relevant as well or, or not? It, massively so, massively so. When you look at the market cap, a market cap is, you know, who makes the most money across the world? The US is consuming over 45% of the world economy. And so that's why it matters, because what the US does has a direct impact on the rest of the world. You're absolutely right. The S&P 500, which is the top 500 companies, mainly tech companies in the US, has had a, an extremely good year. But you have to be cautious because the majority of those gains have come from the top seven companies in that index. So Meta, NVIDIA, Tesla, Apple, those kind of stocks. And so actually, when you take that out, the S&P 500 has been relatively muted over the 12 months. But those tech companies have incredibly skewed those results. But what that does is that shows the importance of having a diversified portfolio. So you haven't got too much money in any one of those companies. But Tommy, you're absolutely right. You know, that has an impact. I'll come on to a, a bit about that in a moment on investments. So the graph I'm now showing is really just a, a comparison of the inflation rates between the G7 and the EU. And what it shows is that the UK is still in the worst position out of all the countries that we are highlighting. The US is definitely on trend. They're getting themselves back below 2.5% on the inflation rate. And if they can continue with that rate, that means that the interest rate rises have done their job. So is it worth me explaining why interest rates go up to curb inflation? I think it definitely is, because I was just thinking we've gone in pretty high level here and pretty hard, which I like, we have. like, and I know a lot of our listeners <laughs> like, but, but let's just roll it back. Like, 
exactly what you just said. What is the relationship between interest rates and inflation? So if we think about what inflation is, it's the increase in costs year on year of everything we buy, use, have in our lives. And if that is what, what and then we need to understand what drives inflation. A lot of it is demand. So if we go look back at economics, the main driver here is supply and demand. If there isn't enough supply of a widget and everyone wants that widget, the more and more people will be prepared to pay more for that same widget. Now, we saw this with secondhand cars because new cars you couldn't get hold of due to COVID, lack of microchips, all those sorts of things. So all of a sudden, the secondhand car market rose incredibly fast because there was a demand for cars, but there wasn't enough supply. So that's the general premise behind inflation, supply and demand. Now, what happens then is if inflation is unconstrained and we allow it to keep going and going, it's not kept in check, then we might find ourselves in a position like Zimbabwe have actually in the past, where their inflation rates are, are crazy and a loaf of bread can be a thousand times more expensive the following day. That's, that's probably a slight exaggeration, but you know there have been instances of, of ridiculously high inflation. Venezuela, same. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, so you see it and it becomes unsustainable and it breaks economies and it breaks people and the divide between poor and rich becomes even greater. And so generally what a, a country wants for their economy is that we have reasonably stable inflation and the Bank of England have always asked or always aimed to gain a 2% inflation year on year because they felt that's a sustainable level of increase in the cost of goods and services, assuming that most people will see an increase in their pay in line with inflation or slightly above. And, and that wouldn't be unachievable, would it? If inflation's at 2% and you thought you might on average get a 2.5-3% increase a year, well, that seems good. Everyone's getting wealthier, but we're doing it in a reasonable and managed way. But when inflation gets up to 12.5%, that becomes unsustainable. That becomes difficult for businesses, companies, governments to increase salaries at that level and to maintain it because that just has a knock-on effect. And this is the whole point of something called stagflation, is if everyone keeps getting inflationary rises in their pay and then we don't change our behaviour and we keep spending, then the demand is maintained and that demand drives inflation. So ultimately, what the economy or what the government and the Bank of England are trying to achieve here is to squeeze people's pockets, is to stop us spending, is to reduce the demand on the goods and services we have. And if we can do that, what that actually does is takes the heat out of the inflation. So I think of it like a pressure cooker. I don't know if anyone remembers the old pressure cookers you used to put on the oven, you know, to a lid and, you know, a base. Uh, the, the interest rate increases is about re releasing that valve on top and allowing the inflationary pressures to dissipate. And that's why the government only has this very blunt tool, or the Bank of England rather, has a very blunt tool to curtail inflation. And it's purely about reducing your spending power. And so that's when we go back and say, well, actually, our experience at the moment is that people are still going out and spending money. So the interest rate rises aren't having an impact on people's capacity right now. And if it's not having an impact, well, what are the reasons behind it? We had some savings off the back of COVID that people want to spend, combined with probable reasonable increases in salaries for the majority of people, combined with the fact that interest rates aren't really hitting people yet. 
And there is a big swathe of the UK population that are on fixed rate mortgages at very cheap rates. So hopefully that explains inflation a little bit more and why we find ourselves where we are. It does, yeah. I think John Major was famously quoted back in the 90s of interest rates saying if it's not hurting, it's not working in terms of interest rate rises, which is why, I mean, I think there's a lot of commentators saying let's pause interest rate rises and see where what happens. And then there's a similar argument saying if it's not hurting, it's not working. So, Absolutely. The problem with that is because, like I said earlier, interest rates rises take a while to take an impact and have an effect. The Bank of England have a really difficult job to actually determine when's enough. And do they keep squeezing the interest rates up because there's not having that immediate impact? But like I said, you know, the decision today won't impact people probably for a while. And all it will mean is that when people do start to feel the impacts, they will feel it very hard. And what that can then mean is that we might actually find ourselves in a recession. And a recession is where the GDP, the gross domestic product, how much money the UK government make every year, or the, as, as a UK PLC, how much we make, goes into negatives. And that's for two quarters. So two quarters is, you know, six months. So if we have two consecutive quarters of uh, contraction in the UK economy, that is deemed a recession. How deep that recession goes will be determined by what happens to companies. So what we're talking about here is inflation. But if we're going to curb inflation and bring that back under control, that effectively reduces the demand for goods and services. So right now we're seeing restaurants full up. We're seeing high streets busy. But if the interest rate rises take a bite out of people's spending capacity, then all of a sudden those shops won't be full. Those restaurants will be half empty. And what we might then see are businesses going under because they can't sustain their business practices without the demand for their services. And that's a recession. That's a true recession. That's when you see people lose jobs. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're walking a tightrope to take the heat out of the economy by rising, raising interest rates to a point that it hurts people, but not too much. And then hoping that businesses can sustain themselves through a, a period whilst these interest rates are high until a point that interest rates can come back down. But interest rates will only come back down once inflation is under control. Being the Bank so, of England governor right now is a tricky job. You must be looking at the Fed in America enviously because it seems <laughs> like they've done an all right, all right job and they've still got work to do here at the Bank of England. Absolutely. So what you can see here is the US is under control. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. One of the biggest ones is that they're under, they have control over their own energy. So that's a yeah, big, big difference off, right? to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing is that because of that, and they also have a very different mortgage market in the US, which means the impact of interest rate rises has been quicker. And what you can see, and also they reacted faster than the UK or Europe. And as a result, they've actually seen a real drop in the inflation rates. And actually, they're talking about keeping their rates where they are. And then, you know, assuming things settle down around the 2% mark and stay there for a while, then they'll look to bring back interest rates down. Now, why is that important? Well, as we said earlier, what that means is people then have more disposable income. But more importantly, companies can then start to project for the future. They can start to think about investing. They can start to think about growth and getting back on the, the growth trajectory. And if they do, that's when we start to see growth in stock markets. We start to see, you know, returns improving and the next hopefully three to five years being far more positive than what we've seen over the last three years. 
we're going to talk about investing. <laughs> Favorite topic. I'm excited. I've been getting like a, a few sort of people saying, you know, and I'm sure you get this as well because this is your job. You know, my investments have been flat for the last year. What's going on? Should I pay off my mortgage instead of invest and stuff? So tell us about this slide and then let's get into like things that people are asking. And I do want to touch on bonds because bonds are back as well, maybe. So let's touch yeah. on that. Yeah. So what we've got in this graph is three lines. There's a, a top line that shows quite a lot of movement in it, but a, a general trajectory upwards with obviously a dip during the COVID pandemic. We then got a green line in the middle, which is giving us a, a more consistent approach. And then we have a line more muted down the bottom. Effectively, they are highlighting three portfolios that we offer. One is a high risk, one is a medium risk, and one is a cautious risk portfolio, a more lower risk. And what you can see is that over a five-year period, all of them are in positive territory. And there is a correlation between the amount of risk you take and therefore the amount of return you might receive back. But you're on the, the big dipper roller coaster ride rather than the more sedate teacup ride. And I think that's the way to probably contextualize it. You know, if you're higher risk, you are going on a, a far more volatile journey. But the medium risk is usually somewhere between those two. Now, markets have survived COVID and bounced back. And they've survived every economic issue that we've had over the last sort of 120 years. But I'll move on to talk about what happens after big declines. And this is just data about the US. So apologies if you're, you know, you're sort of seeing that and it's not really showing the global perspective. This is just some of the information we're able to get hold of. Now, yes and no, right? Because if you're holding a, you know, if you just subscribe to the whole buy everything and do nothing strategy, which I do, you know, you're going to have 60, 64% of your portfolio in the US. So it is still the dominant stock market worldwide. And yeah, I mean, it's just booming. I saw that this is a tangent, but a chip maker based in the UK has gone and listed in the States. The FTSE is struggling right now. Like people are listing in the US. If you've got a tech company based in the UK, I've got no idea why you've listed it on the FTSE when you can do what AIM have done, take it to the States. And I think they had a 20% pop on listing day at a 50 billion something valuation that like if that listed in the FTSE, yeah, but anyway, absolutely. that's a tangent. Go back onto but, your slides. Apologies but, for my tangent. That's all right. No, it's absolutely it's relevant because that's another metric that people often say, oh, the FTSE's doing well, the FTSE's not doing so well. That is no way uh, a good indicator of what is going on out there in the market. The FTSE 100 is just the top 100 companies in the UK, and the majority of those are more aligned to things like the banking sector, fuels, fossil fuels. And a lot of them are international, but the UK is still not seen as a very good place to be having headquarters at the moment. So the US is obviously where a lot of it is at the moment. And if we look at market capitalization, the US being a significant proportion, the UK accounts for around 4% of the world, world GDP. Yeah, if your portfolio doesn't reflect that, right? So Mike just said 4% of the global stock market indices around the world is the UK. I see so many people that have got a lot of home bias in their portfolio, like 80, 90% in the FTSE. So, so when someone comes up to me and says, my returns have been completely flat for the last two years, I probably don't really even need to know what they own. I can probably have a reasonable guess that they got a reasonable home bias and or are heavily invested in bonds in a kind of very conservative low risk, which is fine if that's your bag portfolio. Because, yeah, but let's get onto these charts because, again, lovely colours. I'm, I'm really vibing with these colours today, Mike. <laughs> so, very on trend, I guess. So, so what we're really showing here is that off the back of a decline in a market, you usually see some incredibly good returns. 
I say usually because there's always going to be the exception to the rule. And it's that is the point about remaining invested. Yes, cash wise at the moment, you can get some really good rates out there. But you've got to contextualize that as to why interest rates are where they are. If we talk back and think back to the conversation we just had around inflation. And so interest rates are increasing and are only in the position they're in, hopefully for a reasonably short period of time. I say hopefully because obviously the damage it does in terms of people's affordability and everything like that is is quite significant. But interest rates are only high purely to curb inflation. And once you understand that relationship, you then come back and think about investing and say, well, OK, yes, markets have declined by 20 percent or 10 percent. But if we look at the five year average return then over those periods, and this is again, this is US bias. So you have to take this in isolation. But it says US equity returns, 71 percent average cumulative five year return after a 20% market decline. Now, that to me is a pretty phenomenal bounce back. And actually, if we look back at the, the previous slide, let me just see if I can go back to that one. You can see that post-COVID, so we saw a big drop of around 30% actually at the beginning of COVID. But then there was a significant bounce back. And within 12 months, the market had grown by at least 15% from its original point pre-COVID and then continue to march forward. And so from the drop in the market to the bottom point of COVID on a high-risk portfolio that we've got here, it got down to minus 20% and peaked out at plus 40%. So if you got in at the bottom of that market, you would have seen a 60% rise in the value of your investment directly off the back of a big dip. I think that's quite an important point there. And that is why it's important to hold your nerve during some of these periods of time. And then there's this concept called bull and bear markets and long-term benefits of stock investing. So a bull market is when everything's going like, like a raging bull. It's, you know, full pelt, building, growing, continuing. And your bear market, the badges. And what the graph shows here is that the bull markets far outweigh the bear markets. And so a lot to do with investing is about trying to remove some of the emotion from investing, because if you can see it and contextualize it in some of these terms, you'll see that the bear market that we find ourselves or did find ourselves in over 2022, that's a year that a lot of people in investing want to forget. 2023 is already on its rise. We're starting to see things return. You might not feel it. And it feels a bit counterintuitive that we may be, you know, coming towards a recession. But what we also need to remember is that the markets are forward looking and they tend to tell us a story as to what's going to happen and what's coming down the tracks. So when we find ourselves in a bear market, usually that is telling us that in six to 12 months, the economy won't be in a great place. And then vice versa, when it starts to improve and we start to see hopefully the beginnings of a bull market, that's a positive sign that things are going in the right direction. And if we look at the US, it seems inflation is under control. And that means that interest rates will come down at some point. Now, I know that sounds a really rather loose statement. They will come down at some point, um, but they should come down. I really am. <laughs> they should come down in 2024. And <laughs> the markets are sort of suggesting that they believe that will happen. So it's about sentiment and general feeling around where the markets are going. And yeah. that okay, determines cool. a lot of the growth we see.
Yeah, yeah. So my take homes, not advice, but what you're sort of suggesting is investing is a long term game, not a short term game. You show those five year returns, the volatility and all of those portfolios that you showed us, A, B and C are positive over the last five years, just varying degrees of positivity. In terms of the composition of those, you said high risk. So that's portfolio A. Is that just like 100% stocks is what you would say high risk? Yeah, 100% equity. 100%, yeah, 100% equity. equity, yeah. And then B might be like 20% bonds and then C might be this classic 60, 40. Is that basically? No, so so the middle line would be, so the medium risk would be a 60, 40 split. So 60% equities, 40% bonds. And then the bottom line would be 20% equities, 80% bonds. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, wow. So like, yeah, bonds are, well, bonds have been struggling, but not, maybe not at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'll well, like this I'll, slide as well. I'll talk to you about that in a moment. But this slide here just shows you the average annualised returns two years after a recession begins. And it's listed all of the recessions there that we've had over the course of time. Um, generally, there are obviously, you can see there's about four instances where two years in people are still down on the original investment 1929 being the big stock market crash but the majority are above the line after two years so that again just tells a positive story in general terms and, and i think it's clear to say you know investing isn't a short-term gain this is about long-term returns it's about allowing your investments to grow for a continued period of time and a classic warren buffett uh, quote is that you haven't lost money unless you sell and you haven't oh, gained 33 money minutes and 29 seconds on the sweepstake who had that in the sweepstake of when a buffett quote would come in <laughs> i was just trying to hold myself back uh, but 33 seconds 33 minutes 29 seconds someone has there we are prize congratulations um <laughs> but it's yeah, true but, isn't it you haven't yeah, lost unless you crystallize or you sell now, coming back to your point earlier about bonds, well, so so what are government bonds? What is our bonds, corporate government bonds? It's basically borrowing of money. And in return, they will give you back your original money after 5, 10, 15 years. That's the general term. And then they will give you a return on that money. So uh, it's called a coupon, but in essence, an interest return or a yield. Now, bonds are bought and sold on the market, and they are inversely correlated to interest rates. So what that means is interest rates go down, the value of the capital value of bonds goes up, which in turn means yields go down. Now, what we've found is that over the last 14 years, due to the, the sort of 2008 credit crisis, is that the capital value of a bond was overinflated and increased significantly. And bonds have always been seen as a relatively safe haven of people's portfolios on once upon a time are called a risk free return on your investment. But what we've seen is a big correction in that market over the last 12, 18 months, because as interest rates have gone up, the desire to invest in corporate and government debt has gone down and that has an impact on the capital value. So what we've actually seen is a, a correction in the bond market, which has been talked about for many years. And it's finally happened off the back of COVID and the Russia-Ukraine war, amongst other things. So we now find ourselves in probably for the first time in a long time, a more traditional investment setup where bonds are seen as good value and that means that they're not overpriced and they give a reasonable return and therefore they are seen as a big part now of people's portfolios going forward awesome as always hopefully that helps to weather the storm if you're struggling and wondering should i sell all my investments and buy gold or something like that yeah bonds interesting i don't own any bonds but i've explained that elsewhere but i think 
bond, the role of bonds uh, is to de-risk your portfolio. As you said, <laughs> I like that. They were called. What did you say they were called? Risk-free investments in the past. I can't imagine. So, so if I if I go back to my my university days when we were doing economic theory and stuff like that, it was called the risk-free return. And it was seen as a, a baseline to people's portfolios that, you know, you might get 2% risk-free return because bonds are so slow and steady. They do what they say on the tin. But that was pre-credit crisis. That was pre-quantitative easing. That was pre-all sorts of things. Quantitative easing was the, the damaging part of why that bond market changed dramatically and also had a huge impact on the retirement income and valuations of final salary schemes. That, that people had and caused the pension black hole. So that's, again, another untold, probably for another day, that conversation. It is, but it, yeah, yeah risk-free return, It's a we're back to potentially that. They might not want to call it that anymore, but that's what it was called once upon a time. Yeah, but I think basically the role of bonds is bonds aren't going to make you rich. They're just going to stop you from losing it all because they kind of, uh, they make your portfolio less volatile. So if you're the kind of person who checks your portfolio every day and you get in a panic when it drops 5%, 100% equities, probably not for you, not advice, but bonds can help to kind of temper that down a bit as well. But then I also think, and I, I like to get your opinion on this, is that if you're a conventional, if you've got a conventional pension set up, right, your pension, you're not in the NHS pension, your pension is invested in the equities and bonds. And so you do not want huge volatility in that because you need a certain guaranteed level of income in your retirement. Now, the way I think about it is that my investment portfolio is like a little side pot, which is going to get me out of jail early. So, you know, I'm all in on early retirement and I'm on track for it. I already got like a super boring, stable investment like bonds, which is the NHS pension. So that's why I personally do not own any bonds. Criticize my approach. It's not advice. Do your own research. Please don't copy me like you know, this is not me. But that's why, that's how I think about it, because bonds are boring, bonds stabilise things. I've already got a really boring and a really stable investment plan for retirement. It's called the NHS pension. So I might as well just go 100% equities in the rest of my portfolio. And yeah. So it really comes down to your financial position today, how much you want in retirement, how you feel about risk. What I'm trying to say is there are too many variables to be able to give you a, a straightforward answer today. Now, that's not yep. cop out. That's just being good, prudent financial planning. However, if you want some generalizations, if you start when you're 20 and you start investing on a regular basis, then you get to take advantage of pound cost averaging. You've spoken about that many a time before. But also that gives you the ability to probably take more risk because you're playing with a smaller amount of money. You've got a very long time horizon. 30, 40 years. And so you can afford not to look at it, allow it to do what it does, trust in possibly the market you know, economy and that it will grow over time. There's no guarantees, clearly. But you don't need to worry if it goes down by 30% or up by 70% because you're not, you can't access it. You don't need it right now. Normally, if you need your money sooner, then absolutely you may not have 100% equities. You may temper that. If you need money within the next three to five years, well, investing is probably not for you because you should be contemplating and saying, well, okay, I need that money. I cannot allow that to drop in any way, shape or form. Your capacity for loss is very low. Whereas when you're 20 and you're putting £50 a month in, your capacity for loss is very high. Now, if you're like Tommy and you have a guaranteed NHS pension, 
then that means that you could argue that is your risk-free return. That is your base level of income that you need in retirement. And as long as you're happy and comfortable with that level of income, well, then you may be able to take some more risk. But taking risk and actually your tolerance for risk are two very different things. So you might have a high attitude to risk, but your actual tolerance for risk could be much lower. So the, the classic is, will it wake you up at night wondering what's going on? Are you looking every day, fretting over what's happening with your portfolio? If the answer is you are fretting every day, looking at it, has it gone up? Has it gone down? Can you continue? And, it, and it's causing anxiety within you. Well, that would be suggestive of taking too much risk. Not necessarily, because sometimes it might just be you need the conversation with a financial advisor to talk through the vagaries of what's going on and to sort of contextualise it. And that's a lot of what we do as well. Majoritively, if you're self-investing and you are taking too much risk, and that probably means you are going to feel quite anxious about what you're doing. Mike, the voice of reason against my hyperbole. I think that's exactly <laughs> right. You know, you've got to match your situation to the right portfolio for you. Okay, so that's why that's the right portfolio for me. It doesn't keep me awake at night. I check it once a year when I do my annual financial review. I genuinely, I logged in the other day to one of my accounts and the last login was 2021. I was like, oh, probably left that one a bit long because I'm just pound cost averaging every month via direct debit into my portfolio. I haven't changed it for years because it's right for me, but it might not be right for you. And I think you're right. Like the value of a financial advisor is everyone thinks your job is to pick stocks and everything. No, it's behavior management is to stop us, your clients doing stupid things like, you know, selling when they shouldn't or buying long portfolio for those. So yeah, voice of reason as always. Love it. Great. So we can find you on Medic's Money. We can find you on mortgagesfordoctors.com or medicalandgeneral.com. .co.uk. Apologies. .co.uk. Thanks so much, Mike. Look forward to the next update. Take care. No problem. Thanks for having me.